leader. When you think about the word leader, what do you think about? What does society think about? What would a secular definition of the word leader look like? Perhaps the words title, power, money, riches, promotions, possessions. Most secular leaders focus on popularity, possessions, power, and promotions. They want to line their own pockets. They want to have authority over people and get rich. Most secular leaders, think about, think about Nebuchadnezzar. In his prideful arrogance, he stood on his back porch and he said, look at what the, that work of my hands has built. And God reminded him, no, no, no. It's not all about you. Many seek to be served. How many people can I gather around me that will do whatever I tell them to do? Rather than seeking to serve others. It's a, it's a self-secular leadership. It's a self-centered philosophy where the leader occupies the center of his or her own universe. It's prideful, it's arrogant, it's unbiblical, and it's just downright wrong. But you will encounter it. And it comes naturally. The desire to feel good about yourself, to be the center of your universe, the desire to have people serve you and do whatever you want them to do, the desire to line your own pockets and have possessions and nice things, it comes very naturally to us. It's our sin nature that wants to accumulate all these things. It's our pride that wants to well up and say, we are important, so we have to fight against it. So Nehemiah today is gonna model for us servant leadership. He, in a small way, points us to the greatest servant leader of all, Jesus Christ. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. He humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross. So today we look at a lesser servant in the Old Testament who points us to a greater servant in the New Testament, and we look at a servant whose motivation talks to us about our own motivations in the gospel. Now, perhaps you're sitting there thinking, I'm not a leader, I'm a student. No, 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 that's not true. All of us are leaders to one degree or another. We take care of the depth of our theology, of the depth of our ministry. We let the Lord take care of the breadth of what we're doing. But all of us have influence over others. All of us need to be good stewards of the gifts that God has given us, and all of us need to seek to serve others. Servant leadership. So in Nehemiah 5, make sure you're there. We'll read it in just a second. He demonstrates three admirable characteristics that we're gonna walk through. It will be part of our three points as we walk through this narrative text that we should seek to live out. He provides a good example for us. In this way, we should mimic Nehemiah. You remember in chapter four, last time, he overcame the opposition from the outside. That opposition was intimidation. Uh, they, they told lies about them. And then after they told lies about them, they made fun of them. And then after they made fun of them, they said, we're gonna come have war against you. And then after they said they were gonna have war against you, it led to depression. And then he had to overcome all of these things. And so he overcame all of this outside opposition. Today, we see internal opposition. And sometimes internal opposition is even harder to overcome than external opposition because internal opposition tears us apart, whereas sometimes external opposition can force us together to fight a common enemy. So today in facing this division, here's what we're going to see. 
We're going to see that Nehemiah listened compassionately. We're going to see that he led courageously. And we're going to see that he lived charitably. Those are going to be our three points. Here's our main idea before I read the text for you. The main idea is the fear of the Lord motivates us to serve God and others well. Now, I'm not going to read the entire text to start us off. I'm going to read the first six verses. But in this text of chapter 5, you're going to see the fear of the Lord twice. The fear of the Lord is a reverential awe of God. It's an Old Testament understanding of what we would talk about in the New Testament as recognizing who we are and who he is, which is the gospel. We repent of our sins and put our faith in the greater God, who is the glorious God who has redeemed us from our sins. So it's that fear of God then that leads us to serve God well, love for God, that should sound familiar to you, and to serve others well, love for others, two of our core values. These things should resonate with you. And then our three points for you. If you want to know where we're headed, this is where we're headed. Verses one through six, listen compassionately. We should mimic that. Verses seven through 13, lead courageously. And then verses 14 through 19, live charitably. Now, when we read the Bible, it's as though God himself were speaking to us. It is God's revelation to us through the inspiration of his Holy Spirit, using men to record his words for us, for our knowledge. So we stand in honor of the reading of God's word. So if you are able, would you stand with us today as we read the first six verses? Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we borrowed money for the king's taxes on our fields and on our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it's not in our power to help it. For these other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Dear Lord, as we look at your word today, will you help us to catch a glimpse of who you are and who we are? Would you help us to serve you and to serve others well? In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. And you may be seated. Point number one. We listen compassionately. Verses one through six. Let's walk through what happens here. In verse one, we see there's a great outcry. The word great tells us that this is a big deal. So perhaps they're still building the walls. As they're building the walls, it has caused some other things to come up because they're lacking food. It tells us that there's a famine, all of these things coming up. So there's a great outcry. In books like Nehemiah, you very seldom see women mentioned. You very seldom see that they're speaking or that they're doing anything. And here we note that it says, and of their wives. So there's a concern here. Think about what's happening. The children aren't getting food. If the children aren't getting food, then mama's not going to be happy. And mama says, this has got to stop. And daddy says, this has got to stop. This is not okay that, that we're many and that we're starving and that we have no food. And so a great outcry erupts as they're trying to get a wall built. So what do you do? Well, he listened first. The outcry was against, in verse 1, their Jewish brothers. So it wasn't against foreign authorities or leaders. They're not complaining against Artaxerxes or some foreign power that you can't do anything about. They're not even complaining about Nehemiah. 
they're complaining about their Jewish brothers. And here are the complaints. There are different categories that we can see here in verses two through five. There are some that are starving because of a food shortage and they owned no land in verse two. It doesn't say they had land. It just says we're many. And it says, let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. This is genuine hunger. This is not a hunger because of a laziness or a lack of effort to work. They're working, they're doing things. This is just genuine poverty, genuine hunger. Verse three, you see a difference. You see, some had mortgaged their fields to buy food. We're given another little insight here in verse three when it says they had to mortgage their yards, their vineyards, their fields, their houses to get grain because of the famine. So there's a famine that's taking place. That's part of what has added the pressure onto this scenario. So we haven't even mentioned the famine that's taking place as we've talked about all the obstacles that Nehemiah had to overcome in building a wall and in building it in a short amount of time. There's a famine taking place here. Verse four, there's another category. This category is those who owned land. And so then the king taxed their land. They couldn't pay the taxes. So what they had to do was mortgage their land to get the money to pay the taxes. And so here they're complaining. We've borrowed money for the king's tax. Now our flesh is just like our brothers. We're Jewish people, they're Jewish people. We're human, they're human. It's flesh, just like our brothers. And our children are just like their children. Yet, we can't pay the tax. We can't do these things because other people have our fields. And that leads us to verse four, where some of the sons and daughters are actually enslaved to pay off the debt. So you can't pay off the debt because you had to mortgage your fields. So you can't harvest what's there. So other people are harvesting it. They're getting the profit from it. So now you're stuck to where the only way you can pay this off is to put your children into slavery. Now, this is not chattel slavery as we would have had in the United States. This is temporary debt slavery. You remember the year of Jubilee in your Old Testament so that every seven years that that would be taken care of, that everything would be forgiven. And so here they're having to put their children into debt slavery, which is not a good scenario for any community seeking to glorify God and love others. They are choosing between slavery or starving. What do you do? It's a desperate situation. Nehemiah listened. How do I know he listened? And how do I know he was compassionate? It tells me this in verse six. Nehemiah himself writes, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. So Nehemiah has recorded this for us. Nehemiah has told us he was angry about it. There was an injustice taking place and he had an emotional response to it. And his emotional response was anger. So here are some other verses for you and then some application. Proverbs 18, 13 tells us, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. That verse indicates to us we need to listen well and we need to listen first before we react, before we judge, before we respond because often what we do is look at somebody and prejudge everything about that person based on an external appearance, based on what we're seeing from an outside perspective. And yet, before we give an answer to a question, before we look at somebody and judge them, we should listen to them. James 1, 19 and 20 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. Oh, isn't that hard? To be quick to hear, not to interrupt. As soon as they take a breath, we interject a word so that we get to speak. But we're to be quick to hear because we have two ears and one mouth. So we listen twice as much as we speak. We are quick to listen, 
slow to speak and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So here's my application for you out of just this portion. Here's where I'm convicted. And here's where I think we need to evaluate ourselves. Do we listen or do we prejudge? Do we make assumptions? How do we feel when we see somebody that's poor? How do we feel when we see somebody that's homeless? How do we feel when we look at a disobedient child in a public setting? How do we feel when we see an angry driver driving way too fast, weaving? Do we think, what an idiot. Or do we think maybe there's a medical emergency or maybe there's something going on or maybe there's a death in the family or maybe there's something else happening. I don't need to get angry at them because they're trying to get where they're going. We don't know. We can't listen because they're in another car. But we sure can prejudge, can't we? Or maybe it's just me. What about another person living in government-subsidized housing? Oh, well, they must be lazy. They must not be very smart. Do we prejudge people? My wife and I lived in government-subsidized housing when we first got married, didn't we? We didn't live there for long, but we did. We started out there. Would you have looked at us pulling into that parking lot and thought, trash? Maybe. How often do we do that? And we shouldn't. We should listen. We should have compassion. We should seek to get to know others. What cultural forces could come to affect someone's sickness, medical bills, death of a family member, a child with autism, broken families, drug addiction, the opioid crisis is rampant in our state and throughout our nation. Things are happening all across the country. And I want to say to you that as Nehemiah showed compassion, we know Jesus also showed compassion. When he looked upon the masses, he had compassion on them. When he fed the 5,000, he looks out at this great crowd and he has compassion on them and he shows mercy on them. And this is what we should do as Christians too is have love and compassion but not just on others upon our own community how often is it we look at each other and even prejudge we look at each other and we say oh well you know they're just fill in the blank can I challenge us to live to a higher standard to live to a Nehemiah example to live to the standard of our savior and that we are quick to listen, slow to speak, and that we show compassion freely. This fits for many of you. And many, many of you, you're going to have to do this day in and day out. And it's going to drain you and it's going to be hard. And you're going to have to make sure you are in the word, constantly replenishing your souls. Because you're going to go into fields like social work. And you're going to constantly be in cases where you could walk in and prejudge a situation without listening. You're going to have to listen to what's going on. You're going to have to have the wisdom of Solomon to determine how you can help. You're going to get angry at times. You're going to be completely drained emotionally at times. Some of you who are educators and see students in your classroom, you're going to experience this emotion, this feeling day after day after day as you see students whose parents may not be investing in their lives. And it's going to be so easy for us to prejudge. Oh, well, they're just fill in the blank. Those of you who are healthcare workers, you see somebody come in and immediately prejudge and line them up. They go in this category. They go in that category. How easy is it for us to do this? And how hard is it for us to listen with compassion? So I challenge you today to look in the mirror. And ask yourself this question, do I give others the amount of grace that I would like for them to give me? Point number two, lead courageously. Look at what happens here in verse seven. Verse seven, it says, I took counsel with myself. Now there's a good point right there. 
So he's angry. He admits he's angry. Because he's angry, he says in verse seven, I took counsel with myself. Well, what does that mean? I talked to myself. I calmed it down. I allowed my blood pressure to, to drift down rather than just reacting and responding while the adrenaline was flowing. While I could still taste the adrenaline in my mouth, I didn't go do something. I actually took a step back and said, I am in no condition right now to handle this. I took counsel with myself. I thought it through. I had a time to calm down. I had time to seek the Lord in this. I had time to pray in this. And there's an example for us there in that when we are angry, that's often the worst possible time for us to say or do anything. It's time that we need to calm down, rethink, and then respond in a right way with a good godly action because often when we're angry, we don't think clearly. We can't have good logic. We just react and blow up. And, and we, all we do is get louder and louder and louder and louder. And it's the loudest voice that wins. So I'm going to get louder and louder. And then you say things you don't mean. You say things that don't even make sense. And then later, everybody's like, but you said this. Like, yeah, I did. And I was an idiot when I did it because I was angry. And I didn't listen to Nehemiah who said he took counsel with himself. Do you have that self-awareness to recognize that you're angry and you shouldn't be speaking or typing or texting or tweeting or Instagramming or fill in your, your blank. Can we self-correct? Can we recognize the sinful nature as it wells up inside of us, the selfishness, the anger, the pride, the arrogance, as it begins to emerge, as our shoulders begin to bow back, as our brows begin to furrow, and we begin to say, I'm gonna take vengeance right now on this, and we recognize that that I'm gonna take vengeance on this, this I'm gonna give you a piece of my mind is an ungodly action that we should never pursue. We need to back up. We need to count backwards from 10 to one. We need to take some deep breaths. We may need to just turn and walk away. We may need to get it along, get some time with God. God, I'm mad. God, I don't know how to handle this injustice. God, I just want to blow up. God, I, I just want to go punch somebody. Maybe that's your issue. I just want to go hit somebody or something. I'm going to go hit a wall. How dumb is that? The wall didn't do anything and it's going to break your fist, but you're going to hit it anyway. We do really stupid stuff. I've got a weakness. I need to calm down. I need to think this through. I need a little bit of time. I need to go read my Bible. I need to be in Proverbs. You give me an hour in Proverbs, we'll have a conversation. You don't want to have a conversation? I don't want to have a conversation until I've had an hour in Proverbs or Psalms or pick your book. This is what he did. He took counsel with himself. Let's go. He keeps on. And then it says, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, all right, there's some application here too. He went to them, and he said to them, so he went to them face to face. All right, now, I'm a little bit anachronistic here. I get this. He didn't live in a generation where he could pull out his phone and say, that's it, I'm texting them right now. He couldn't do that, right? But he didn't do that either. And I want to say to you, there are times when you should never text you should never tweet. You should never post on Instagram or Facebook or TikTok or whatever it is you're posting on now. <laughs> you should never do it. Just don't do it. If there is bad news, if there is hard news, if there's a difficult conversation, if there's something that needs to be said, you don't even need to pick up the phone to do it a lot of times. You need to get up, get on your feet, walk across to somebody, look at somebody in the eye and say, we need to have a conversation. Nehemiah said to them, 
this is difficult. We don't like to do this. Why is it we don't like to do this? Because our blood pressure gets up and it's hard to have a conversation with somebody. I'm not gonna know the right words to say. What if they say something else? I don't know that I'm gonna win. It's not about winning. It's about winning a friend. It's about face-to-face. It's about getting in front of somebody. And if you have a fear of this, then check yourself right now in the mirror and say, if I don't wanna talk to somebody about a hard topic, I've gotta work on that because that is part of being an adult. That is part of being a mature follower of Christ is that I love other people so much, I will go have a conversation with them face-to-face because it's so much easier to sit behind a keyboard and type on keys one way or another and be rude and arrogant and harsh and sinful and tell cannot be understood in keys. So I can go to you and with my face, I can say to you, brother, this is hard and we've got to have a hard conversation and I love you and that's why I want to tell you the truth and I can't say all of that behind a text. So can I just say to you by way of application here, if you struggle with having a hard conversation face-to-face with another person, you have to develop that skill. And you have to develop that skill now. Otherwise, it will hold you back. And there's a whole lot of stuff that should never be put in email anyway. It should never be put in email at all. All right, I'm gonna move on. So what did they do? Verse seven, he said he brought charges. He brought charges, what charges? You are exacting interest from his brother. Exodus 22, 25. If you lend money to any of my people, your brothers, who is poor, you shall not be like the money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. Continues on in verse seven. And he says to them, and I held a great assembly against them. So he addressed them one-on-one. I don't know what happened. I don't know if they said, we're not doing anything. We're not fixing it. I don't know if they said, okay, we'll take care of this. We're not told. But he addressed them face to face. He said to them, and then he held a great assembly. He got everybody together so everybody would hear it. And then in verse eight, he says, I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers that have been sold to the nations. So we have redeemed them. We bought them back. We've used our money. We have rescued our brothers. And then look at what's happening here. We've rescued them, but then you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. How many times must they be redeemed? They've been redeemed from slavery in Egypt. We've been exiled. We have redeemed them back. And now you're taking advantage of them and even redeeming them here. This great assembly comes together. And look at what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah says in verse nine, so I said, the thing that you are doing, in my opinion, might not be the best thing. According to the opinion poll, it's not a popular thing for us to do in society. He says, it's not good. There's a definitive statement of universal truth and that this is not right and not good. We live in a society where you can do anything you want except make a definitive statement of universal truth. But we have a Bible that does nothing but make definitive statements of universal truth. So one of the things we have to learn to do is have compassionate conviction and hard conversations with those people who think we can't have any type of universal truth And to do so in a way that shows we love them and we have compassion on them. Look at this is important. This is repeated in this text. So we have to underline this, star this, highlight this, copy and paste this into your notes, whatever you need to do. It's not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? Now, verse 15, looking over, he tells you one of his motivations is because of the fear of God. This is a repeated phrase. This is why it's in our main idea of the text is it's in this text twice. It's our motivation. It's why we do what we do. Their motivation for being called to a higher standard was, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? 
to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Now, this is not a confession. He's saying we're lending them money and grain, but we're not doing what you're doing. We're not exacting this heavy usury. We're not selling them into slavery because if he was doing the exact same thing, he would be a hypocrite to be very angry over what he just heard. So he's lending the money, but he's just not abusing the system here. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Verse 11, return it to them. Return this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage. Now, some of your text, if you're using a different translation than I am, may talk about 100%. We don't know exactly what the 100th percent is. The best estimate we have is that it would be 1% per month or 12% annually that they were exacting. It could be that it just generally means that they're taking the profits off of the land that they have taken. They're not giving them back to the others so they can never get out of the debt that they owe. Here in the ESV, it says, in the percentage of the money, the grain, the wine, and the oil that you have been exacting from them. So then what happens? Well, they say, we will restore these and require nothing from them. They heard Nehemiah, they heard him in the great assembly, and they responded, okay, we'll do it. We'll do as you say. So then Nehemiah wisely called in the priest. In our day and time, this is like calling in the lawyers and getting the contract, right? Okay, let's get it signed. All right, we're bringing the priest forward. We're going to bring the priest and you're going to make this commitment before God and before the priest and before all the great assembly. And so he made them swear to do as they had promised. And then he gives an example. He gives a symbolic gesture. It says here, he shook out the fold of my garment. So in the garments that they were wearing, think about your pockets. So what he did is he kind of emptied out his pocket. I'm not going to pull my pocket out, but he kind of emptied out his pocket. He took his pocket lint out of his jeans and he shook it out onto the ground. And then he said, may the Lord so do to you if you don't keep the vow that you just made. Make you as lint shaken out on the ground. And so here he gives this gesture, emptying out his pockets. It's kind of like saying, shake the dust off your feet if they won't listen to you. Now, some would use this text to say, oh, look, there's the abuse of capitalism. Now, let me say to you this. Capitalism is not perfect, but it's better than whatever second by a long shot, especially a whole lot better than socialism, which doesn't work at all. And we're going to have a class on that in the spring. So you sign up for that if you're wondering why. All right. Nehemiah doesn't say, that's it, we're done. The government is taking over lending of all of this. He doesn't privatize, he doesn't take away the privatization of it all. What does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah says, look, there's a better way. Because a capitalistic system works best in a values-based area. If you have people that love God and fear God and know there's a judge coming and they love others, then they're not gonna take advantage of others in such a way to step on top of them. They're gonna serve others well and you can serve others well in a capitalistic society. So what we have happening in our culture today is they're looking at the evils of capitalism and they're saying, get rid of capitalism instead of get rid of the evils. And they're saying, let's replace it with another system. That's broken and doesn't work. and has no hope of working. And instead, what we need to be doing is we need to be saying, yeah, there are evils. Let's get rid of the evils. Let's live by a higher standard because there is a universal standard and there is a creator. It's not evolution, which is the problem because evolution teaches survival of the fittest and I'm gonna step on you because I'm gonna survive. And so that's exactly what you're seeing in some secular societies. And God created us, all of us. So because God created us, when we love others, those created by God in his image well, God is pleased. And therefore the fear of God calls us to serve others well and to do business in such a way that I am pleased and they are pleased and everybody wins. We create win-win scenarios. So let's call each other to a higher level of commitment and values in the way that we do business in our lives. 
Nehemiah obeyed God's laws over man's logic. Nehemiah was not afraid of the people he encountered. Can you imagine going up against the most powerful people in the area and calling a great assembly and saying, what you're doing is wrong? That could have been the end of his political career, right? No politician today would do that because they're not gonna get gifts and they're not gonna have money to run their next campaign. And if they don't have gifts and money to run their next campaign, they are done, they're going home. And yet here, Nehemiah, who we find out was governor here in just a few verses for 12 years, says to them, this is not right. This is courageous leadership. This is convictional leadership. Can I challenge you to lead with courage and to lead with conviction in your life? So now that the accusation could come against Nehemiah, what are you doing? So probably later on, he adds this portion in, verse 14. As he's remembering back, he talks about this. Verse 14, it tells us, moreover, from the time I was appointed to be their governor, there's a point here, he didn't lead with the fact he was governor. This is the first time he's told us he was governor. He doesn't lead with his title. Let me tell you who I am. He just mentions it here. From the time I was appointed governor um, in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. Now that's the main portion of this section. He lived charitably. That's what we're gonna see in verses 14 through 19. He didn't take the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me had laid heavy burden on the people. And they had took from them for their daily rations 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants of the former governors, those servants had lorded it over the people. But I did not do so. Why? Because I wanted to be popular. No. I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall and we acquired no land. It wasn't out for himself. And all my servants... All of my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the other nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day, this is what they did each day, was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for this, he repeats it, I did not demand the food allowance. Why did he not do it? Fear the Lord. Why else did he not do it? He gives us a glimpse. I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Motivated by the fear of God, we serve God and others well. This is what we see in this text. The service was too heavy on the people. Verse 19, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. So one commentator said that this could be up to 600 or more people that came to his table every single day. Nehemiah must have been pretty rich. And yet Nehemiah was an example to us in the Old Testament of how to live with wealth generously to the benefit and good service of God and to others. And he says, remember me, my God. He says seven times, remember me, God. In 519, twice in 614, he ends it in the book in 13, 14, 22, and 29, and 31. The last verse, remember me, God. So let me, let me give you this. We do not put our personal wealth before other people's well-beings. Let me give you this thought too. When we live generously, we imitate God our Father who gave generously. So when I give for no reason and the world looks at me and says, why in the world are you giving? It's an opportunity to display the gospel and say I'm giving because I was given. My God was generous with me and that he sent his only begotten son to go to a cross to die so that I could have salvation freely, a costly gift free. 
So then I give to others because I serve God and I serve others well. And it's all God's anyway. I'm just the steward of it. I don't own any of it. So God has given me resources for me to use those resources for me, for my family, for others. I spread those resources around. I use them as good stewards. I influence others well. That's how we are to live life. We're not to give out of pity or to ease our own conscience because that fails to recognize that other people are created in the image of God and that God died for them just like he died for us. And they are valuable human beings that we should listen to with compassion and then lead courageously and then respond with charity. So what's your motivation? Are you an angry person? Are you a selfish person? Are you a person that never takes counsel with yourself? Or do you exemplify our core values here? Fear God. Love others. Integrity in your conduct. Excellence in your effort. We live for the approval of the master, not the applause of man. We live for the approval of the master, not the applause of man. All right, I have something here. Anybody know what this is? This is a special fort. This says Walco 58 on the back of it. Do you know why that makes it a special fort? Because that means it came from the dining hall. I have my own fort. You can't have it. It's my precious. Let me, let me ask you this question. When you eat a good meal, how often do you compliment the fork? Look at that fork. It's shiny. Oh, oh and the weight of this fork is just so nice. Oh, and it's, it's not perfectly balanced, so I won't drop it off the edge of the stage, but it's balanced enough that it brings food to my mouth. How many of you have ever complimented the fork? You never notice the fork unless the fork is messed up. And then you can't stop staring at the fork because the fork is deformed. What happened to my fork? I need a better fork. You messed up fork. I've got to fix you. Fork, you're wrong here. Or if you can't find a fork. And if you can't find a fork, what happens? Where are the forks? There's no fork there. Where are the forks? Why aren't there forks? There should be forks in these drums. Why aren't there forks in these? We walk around. There needs to be forks. We never compliment the fork, but we sure do miss the fork when the fork's not there. The fork is a good servant seeking to serve because all the fork does (laughs) is bring us the food so that the individual enjoys the deliciousness that is before them. But without the fork, I've got to get my hands dirty and then I'm not, a spoon just doesn't work. It doesn't, it's not a fork. I need a fork. All a fork does is serve. But how valuable is a fork? It's pretty valuable. That's why we have just unleashed 350 new forks in the dining hall as well. So, yeah. But let me say this to you. How often is it that we're looking around And there's a servant that's needed to connect God's people created in his image that he died on the cross to redeem to God's grace and the servant is missing. The servant doesn't need praise. It's just a fork. It's not doing anything all that special. 
until it's not there. And all the fork needs to do is take the good news and deliver it so that the person enjoying the good news can give praise to the ultimate creator. So every time you're looking for a fork from now on, you should think, how can I go be seeking to serve others? Emulating Nehemiah, but even more so, imitating our Savior. What's our motivation in this? It's not works-based, it's gospel-based. Because it is ultimately the fear of the Lord that motivates us to serve God and others well. Dear Lord, I pray that you would help us to resist the temptations of the world, to resist prideful selfishness, the arrogance. Lord, that you would help us to seek to serve, to serve you and to serve others well. And Lord, that we would do so not for our own sake or not for our own glory, but that we would do so for your glory. So Lord, today, help us examine our own lives, help us love others, help us listen compassionately, help us lead courageously, and help us live charitably. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.